It's a feeling more than anything. Intuition. Sometimes it's all you got, and believe you me, criminals rely heavily on intuition. Say you wake up one morning and you just don't feel like it's a good day to go down there and pick up all those stolen laptops you carted, you had better head your ass back to bed. Making your way to the drop address and start getting that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, only a fucking idiot would keep on trucking. Or say you've got that call service agent on the phone. If your intuition is good enough, you know two minutes into the call whether it's going to work or go south on you. And here's the thing, I'm not talking about some superstitious intuition, some black cat crossing the street bullshit. No, 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 this is different. This is the type of intuition a spouse has when they think their mate is cheating on them. They don't know, but they know. Criminal intuition is a lot like that, except it's turned up to 11. And you know, it's hard to say where that intuition comes from, but I do know it's in most skilled criminals. Maybe it comes from a childhood which prepares that person to be a criminal, or maybe it comes from a life of crime and learning that a mistake brings with it a knock at the door and potentially years behind bars. Whatever causes that refined sense of intuition, it's there, and smart criminals, they learn to listen to. Now, I'm sure there's some naysayers out there that are saying, Oh, Brett, that's not intuition. That's paranoia. Okay, all right. I'll give you paranoia does play a part in it. And certainly, we had ample reason to be paranoid. IP logs on the Shadow Crew server side showed a who's who of local, state, and federal alphabet agencies. We were being talked about on law enforcement forums, on law enforcement websites. We had members of Shadow Crew who were obviously law enforcement. So hell yes, we were paranoid. But here's the thing, and you know what they say, if they're really after you, Mr. X was the first person to get popped. Now, Mr. X was with us from the time of Counterfeit Library when it started up, but he had stepped away from the management and from the forums basically altogether until we switched over to being a credit-type forum. At that point, he comes back. Why? Well, he was interested in dumps. Now, for those people out there who don't know what a dump is, look at the back of your credit card or debit card. That magnetic stripe on there, there are three data tracks on that magnetic stripe. The first data track is the customer's name, second data track is the card number, equal sign, 16-digit algorithm out beside of that. Third data track is called indiscriminate data, no one uses it. What's bought and sold on criminal forums and marketplaces is the second data track, and here's why. When you swipe that card, the only information that's sent out for verification is the second data track. So what a criminal does is he typically buys 10 to 20 of these things at a time, he gets 10 to 20 counterfeit credit cards and he encodes track 2 on all of those 20 cards. At the same time, he creates or he buys one fake driver's license in whatever name he wants it to and he programs track 1 on all 20 of those cards to match the name on the driver's license. That way, when he shops, he swipes the card. Track 2 goes off for verification. Track 1 shows up on the screen of the cashier. That way, in case he's asked for identification, he can pull out the fake ID, cashier sees that name on the terminal in front of him or her, and everything's nice, warm, and fuzzy. So what Mr. X was doing is he was buying a lot of these dumps, a lot of counterfeit credit cards, and he was encoding the dumps on the cards, and he was taking a trip to Las Vegas, because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Although in this case, not so much. So he goes the first weekend, and he has a blast. He steals a lot of money, he hits the Bellagio, he hits all these casinos for a ton of money, comes back to Shadow Crew, and guess what he does? He talks all week long about how much money he's stolen out of Las Vegas. 
all week long, knowing that law enforcement is all over that site. Not only does he talk about how much he's stolen, but he also talks about when he's going back to Las Vegas. So he goes back to Vegas the next weekend. Guess what? He goes missing. Yes, he does. His partner, he gets me on ICQ. He's like, hey, Gollum, looks like Mr. X has been picked up. Needless to say, that's what we call in the business, the criminal business, an oh shit moment. I verify that Mr. X has been picked up. I shut down the Shadow Crew forums long enough to start removing any mention of Mr. X and everything that he's done. Turns out, later reports indicated that there were a lot of security professionals on Shadow Crew as well. On top of all that law enforcement, they read about Mr. X stealing all the money out of the casinos. They pinpointed where he was, pulled him up on cameras from the week before, and were waiting on him when he walked back in the casinos this time. And that, my friends, was the end of Mr. X. And of course, those were not the only arrests going on. About the same time, two guys get picked up in Cyprus for carding. And word had it they were being charged under the Patriot Act. Okay, that's Cyprus, long way away. A couple of Carter Planet guys, so not even Shadow Crew folk. But here's the thing. I thought Script and company over at Carter Planet would be as open about things as we were. One of our guys gets popped on Shadow Crew, we announce it to the community, try to cover up their tracks, and then we ban the hell out of them so they can never come back and log in again. Script and the Carter Planet crew? While I thought they were all on the same wavelength, and being truthful with each other and with us, well, they weren't. And when you aren't truthful, bad shit can happen. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. Now, what does it take to get a title like that? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. You can't continue to break the law and not get law enforcement's attention, which is exactly what happens as, as Shadow Crew becomes more and more popular. So we had been fishing out a lot of data the data that we were getting, we were getting a lot of card numbers and pins. So I'm at the top of this heap. I start to hear this chatter because all chatter comes through me at some point. Mm -hmm. The chatter that I start to hear is they're looking for bins. Bin is the bank identification number. The first six digits of a credit card or a debit card is the bin. Mm -hmm. It tells the type of card that it is. So, you know, four is... Visa, 5, MasterCard, 3, Amex, 6, Discover. So it tells the type of card, and it also tells the 
bank that issues that card. What they're looking for is they're looking for all these people are starting. Actually, the Ukrainians are looking for Western, or I'm sorry, it's WAMU. What was what Washington Mutual Bank? That's what that is. Uh-huh. They're looking for bins from that bank, and no one's saying why they're looking for bins for that bank. But everyone's looking for that bin that's Ukrainian. All right. It takes about two weeks to figure out what the hell is going on, and what the hell was going on was called. It, it became to be known as. The CVV-1 hack is what it is. So here's what goes on. It was first discovered with Washington Mutual. We were getting pins and we were getting card numbers. So if you remember what I said a dump is, a dump is track two information. So on the back of your credit or debit card, there's a magnetic stripe there. Three data tracks on that stripe. The first data track is the customer's name. Second data track is the card number, an equal sign, 16-digit algorithm out beside of that. Third data track is indiscriminate data. No one uses it. Second data track. We were getting the card number and the PIN. We did not have the 16-digit algorithm to encode onto a physical counterfeit card to take to an ATM and pull the money out. All right? We didn't have that, and you cannot, you can't generate that. You have to know it. What was discovered was that Washington Mutual had not implemented what they call the hash. So you could take the 16-digit card number, an equal sign, any 16 digits after that, and it would encode onto a card. You could take it to an ATM, start pulling money out because you had the PIN number as well. (laughs) All right. So here's the deal. Up until that point, we were simply doing card not present fraud, which is any type of order where the actual physical credit card is not there. So it's online orders, telephone orders, catalog orders, stuff like that. Profit wise on that, a high a high level carder, credit card thief like myself would profit thirty to forty thousand dollars a month after cash-outs, just doing that type of fraud, okay? The CVV-1 hack, what that meant all of a sudden was, instead of thirty dollars to $40,000 a month, people who were engaged in that were thirty dollars to $40,000 a day. Right. All right? That changes that entire ballgame all of a sudden. And it wasn't just what we've quickly found out. It wasn't just Washington Mutual. It was every bank, None of them had implemented that hash. So you could take the 16-digit card number, which you were fishing out. You had the PIN number. To encode it, you just put any 16 digits on that second track. It would encode. You take it to an ATM, start pulling money out. The main fishers at that point were the Ukrainians. So they tended to have most of the data that was available. So what we were doing is, is they couldn't cash out over there because there was no cash out in the Ukraine. So they had to have American partners. And the way that broke down was is they would send the American partners track two data, send them the card number, the PIN number as well. They would encode it on their own cards. The Americans would. They would go to the ATMs, cash out. And then the breakdown was you were supposed to send 60% back to the Ukrainians. You keep 40%. And, of course, you see the problem there. You know, what's to keep someone from just keeping 100% if they're cashing out for you? Right. Well, nothing's to keep you from that, but that, that's kind of one of these unwritten rules of cybercrime that I came up with. And that rule was, and I started, I started preaching this too, a vendor or a cashier will remain loyal to you 
as long as it's within their best interest to do so. That's right. So if if a cashier actually believes that he's going to get more money from you, more of these these track two datas from you, he'll continue to cash out for you until something happens and it's not in his best interest to do that anymore. Law enforcement, some crap like that, or you rip them off, the card numbers are dead, something like that, which would happen sometimes. So we started doing that, and there were a lot of people involved in that, a lot of people, and that brought on law enforcement's attention. And where we, where we started to see it, because we used to scan, we would frequent law enforcement forums, and we'd also visit different law enforcement websites, state websites, places like that. Where we started to see Shadow Crew being mentioned was first on these forums. Have you guys, and someone would post, have you guys seen what these guys are doing? You need to visit this site. So, of course, we started to get IP numbers from law enforcement sites. Aha. Uh-huh. And, of course, at that point, here's the, the important thing to understand, is that law enforcement, they were no better at hiding their identity than we were. They didn't know how to use proxies or any bullshit like that. So we start we we would see the actual government IP coming in, trace it back. It'd come to whatever government agency it was, and it was not just the locals or the state. We started to see federal agencies starting to visit us as well, and that that gets your attention all of a sudden. And here I am. I'm at the top of the heap. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm worried about Rico. I'm worried about these racketeering charges of you know every crime is being committed on there. I'm being charged with all that stuff at the end of the day. So I'm getting worried about that. At about the same time, actually before that, as we're transitioning to Shadow Crew, my second in charge, his name is uh, Kim Taylor. He was a um, a bookseller out of Denver. He worked at the Tattered Cover Bookstore, which is a great bookstore in Denver. It's fantastic. He starts visiting Shadow Crew, and he, he speaks with authority. He speaks like he knows what he's talking about as far as identity goes, especially coming up with counterfeit identities or fake identities and stuff like that. And he he positions himself. He starts talking about how he spent his entire life fabricating identities for spousal abuse victims or women who are then in trouble. And I'm like, you know, that's that's a novel concept. I like that. I like you, dude. And, and I, again, he speaks with authority. So I'm sitting there, I'm buying this bullshit. I don't know that he's this bookseller. I think that he's, okay, this guy knows his stuff. Because of what he's saying, a lot of it is correct. Well, I've been having trouble with this guy named Black Armor. And I don't know if I've talked about him in the past or not. I don't think I've heard that name. So one of the initial, as I mentioned before, my initial job in cybercrime was to be a reviewer. And I built that from a reviewer up to the top of the heap, actually controlling everything. Well, when I was starting out as a reviewer, one of the first people that I reviewed was this guy named Black Armor. And he provided a, um, I think it was, yeah, it was a California birth certificate was what it was. So I got that birth certificate in before I really knew what a birth certificate was supposed to look like, before I knew what intaglio printing was or offset printing or anything else like that. So to my uneducated eye, it looked good, and I gave it a really good review. Well, I was the only reviewer at that point, so people took me at my word. I, I, had, I had developed enough trust with people that if I said something was good, they would buy it. What they were able to use that birth certificate for prior to 
what you could do is, is you would buy that certificate. So my name is Brett Johnson. I would buy a certificate's name in the name Brett Johnson, except I would have the date of birth as 2019, mm-hmm. January 22nd, 2019. I would send that birth certificate in to the Social Security Administration. They would issue a Social Security number for Brett Johnson, born January 22nd, 2019. I'd get the Social Security card. I would then go down and get a job and use that Social Security number for Brett Johnson 2019, except I would put my date of birth in as January 22nd, 1970. Now, here's what would happen. That number would then report to the Social Security Administration. The Social Security Administration would flag that immediately. What the hell's going on? So they would pull that social out. They would say, Brett Johnson, 2019. Oh, no. His... He's born 20, 20, or 1970, and they would change it. They would update instead of 2019, all of a sudden, it would say 1970. And that worked like a charm. You didn't have to have a good, good-looking good birth certificate for that. And they had no one to contact to verify. No one to verify, all right? After 9-11, that bullshit changes quick. Now... You have to have a really good-looking birth certificate. You have to have a birth certificate that you can verify. That became the problem with Black Armor. Before 9-11, it didn't matter that the birth certificate was basically shit. It would still go through. After 9-11, it mattered a lot. So I started to get a lot of feedback from people who were trying to come up with new Social Security numbers of, hey, this stuff is not working. As a matter of fact, I'm getting a knock on the door about this. So that, is, that was a huge problem. At the same time, MacGyver, Kim Taylor, he's coming up in the ranks, and I'm seeing this guy as, you know, he knows what he's talking about. So one day I get up with him. I get him on ICQ, and I'm like, hey, man, I got an idea. Why don't you help me out with something? And he's like, what do you need? And I was like, look, I've got problems with this black armor guy. I need someone to come in because I've given him a good review. I need someone to come in and basically say, hey, the product is shit. That way I can feed off of you get rid of this guy and make amends for the mistakes that I've made. And I'll replace everybody. I'll pay their money back, whatever I need to do. And he's like, let's do that. So I send Kim, I send him the uh, the birth certificate. He reviews it, and he basically calls it bullshit. You know, it's not God in Talio printing. It's uh, the stamp on it is horrible, everything else. So, and I feed into that. I'm like, I'm glad you pointed this out. You are outstanding. Why don't you come into the fold? He becomes my second in charge. The truth of the matter was is that Kim Taylor was a bookseller. He was well-read, but he was not well-versed in fraud. <laughs> he knew book stuff. He knew what he had read. He, he, in practice, he was absolutely horrible. And we're talking about a guy in his mid-40s at this point. I was 34. He was 46. I didn't know that until after everything happens. So when he comes to me one night and we're running Shadow Crew, he gets me on ICQ and he's like, Hey, man. I found this great guy to run the forum tech side of things. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because we were getting DDoSed at this point. We were having DDoS problems, everything else, which DDoS is a dedicated denial of service. Right. They were these, these different people and agencies trying to shut us down. And we needed tech support. We, we couldn't do everything ourselves. We were too busy with other stuff. So MacGyver, Kim, he gets me on ICQ, and he's like, hey, man, I found the perfect guy to run the tech side of things. And I'm like, who? And he was like, Kumba Johnny. And I'm like, who the hell is Kumba Johnny? 
And he's like, Kumba Johnny is a great hacker. He knows his stuff. He's outstanding with computers. Well, I took Kim at his word at that point. Kumba Johnny turns out to be this guy named Albert Gonzalez. Albert Gonzalez will be the end of Shadow Crew, except we didn't know it at that point. So Albert starts running the tech side of things. Now, at about the same time that he's doing that, within six, eight months later, is when the CVV-1 hack comes out, where everybody's cashing out at $30,000 to $40,000 a day. Albert starts engaging in that. And by this point, Albert's also a credit card seller, so selling credit card details as well, under the screen name of Scarface. And he's got this, what he calls his entire life's goal. I guess he listened to rap music, because there was this rapper named 50 Cent, <laughs> and 50 Cent had this album called Get Rich or Die Trying. So Albert adopts that entire philosophy, Get Rich or Die Trying. Well, what he does, what this idiot does, and there's two stories, and you can take your pick as to whichever one is real, because they've both been reported. What he does is, is he decides he's going to engage in the CVV-1 cash out. He's in New Jersey. And I'll tell both stories. The first story, as reported by the New York Times, is that at midnight, a few minutes before midnight, he's walking down the street and this cop just happens to see him. Albert goes in and the cop thinks he looks quote-unquote suspicious. Albert walks in to a bank lobby or a lobby that has an ATM, multiple ATMs according to the story, and Albert stands at one of the ATMs. The cop follows him, follows him into the lobby and the cop's acting like he's using an ATM machine. Albert is wearing a wig, a nose ring, and a disguise. And he pulls out a white plastic card, puts it in the ATM machine, pulls out money, stuffs it in a backpack. Pulls out another card, does the same. Several times he does this until the cop figures out he's stealing something. Don't know what, but he's stealing something. Cop walks over and asks him what the hell's going on. Albert falls apart. That's the first story. <laughs> the second story which I find much more likely, considering it was Albert Gonzalez, is that in broad daylight, Albert Gonzalez is standing at an ATM machine across the street from a diner, and he's got a backpack on his shoulder, he's wearing that wig with that disguise, and he's got a stack of white plastic cards encoded with track twos, he's feeding one card in, pulling out 20, stuffing it in the backpack, another card, and he does this shit for 40 minutes. <laughs> 40 minutes. Meanwhile, across the street, there just happens to be two New Jersey officers having lunch. They just happen to notice Albert Gonzalez standing at this ATM terminal for 40 minutes until one figures out, you know, let me go over and ask this guy what the hell he's doing. <laughs> at which point the cop gets up, walks across the street, walks up to the kid, Albert, sees the wig, sees the disguise, and asks him what the hell he's doing, and Albert falls apart. Now that second story comes from law enforcement. Secret I, Service. Yeah, I, 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 I believe that one. Uh, you know, it seems like Albert Gonzalez was not very artistically creative. No. <laughs> no. He was not. But this is the kid that when he's arrested, he flips immediately. He asks for Secret Service. Now, 
by all details, the law enforcement that I, you know, I ended up working with Secret Service as well. Right. From the stories that I heard, and I was told directly by them, they had no idea how to track down the Shadow Crew people. They really had no tech skills whatsoever at that point. Nowadays, they do. They've got tech skills out the wazoo. Back then, they didn't. So they relied on Albert to come up with, how are we going to find these people? What Albert does is he comes up with an idea for VPN. That's what he says. I had, and I'll tell that story the next episode, but I had stepped away from Shadow Crew by that point because of fear of law enforcement. But not only fear of that, but we had a guy. His name was Enhance. That was his screen name. And you may remember in 2003, 2004, a little girl by the name of Paris Hilton. I remember Paris Hilton, yeah. Very popular back then. Mm-hmm. She uh, she had her T-Mobile phone list, her contact list, published. All the phone numbers of every person that ever was on her phone. Yep. That was us. <laughs> yeah, that was Enhance who actually did that. Okay. Well, at the same time he did that, Secret Service in Los Angeles used T-Mobile as well. So he had text messages of the Secret Service investigating Shadow Crew at the same time. We had access to that. Now, here's the, here's the big secret to that shit. You might think that's a hack. It wasn't a hack. Enhance worked for T-Mobile. Oh. So there was no hack going on there. But we had that too. So I'm sitting there looking at all this information, all the IPs that are coming in, seeing all the law enforcement that are talking about us on the forums, but not only the forums, some of the local websites, like the a few of the state uh, law enforcement websites in Florida, were mentioning Shadow Crew specifically. So I got worried, and I left. And I'll tell the story of me leaving uh, the next episode. But Albert sets up the VPN after I leave, and he basically tells everybody, hey, we have to remain safe. Law enforcement's looking at us. So all traffic needs to go through this VPN so that no one can see what we're doing. <laughs> of course, the VPN was ran by Secret Service. Of course. And that was that spells the end of Shadow Crew, which is what we'll get into later. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened to Albert Gonzalez? Oh, Jesus. Kumbajani. So Albert, like I said, he was selling credit cards with Scar- under the screen name Scarface. He's arrested. Oh wait, he. Oh, I got my characters. Okay. Twisted around. He was not Kumbajani. He was Kumbajani. He was Kumbajani. Yeah, Albert had several different screen names. Okay. So Albert was the tech support under Kumbajani. He was the credit card seller under Scarface. He was the cash out guy for the CVV one hack under Soup Nazi. And he had some other ones. He had Segway, I think, was one of his other names. He had several different names that he operated under. And he was kind of an outlier on that. What what typically happens is someone who has a screen name, the screen name becomes their brand. All right? Right. So you're known by that name. You live and die by that name. Albert was one of the first people that, that really decided he was going to create multiple identities. All right, so I always went by the screen name of Gollum Fun until I retired. Then I, I had another screen name after that. But Albert was one of these guys that, that figured out, no, I can build different brands using different names. It's, it's still not common to do that. Um, today, most people have one screen name 
across multiple websites. And that's one of the things that, that aids law enforcement in tracking these guys down. They don't, you know, you, you live and die by that name. You build that brand up, which is good, but at the same time, it lets law enforcement track you across multiple platforms. So right. not good. But uh, Albert gets arrested. Like I said, his initial arrest was in New Jersey, cashing out an ATM machine. He flips. He goes to work for Secret Service. Great. Secret Service pay that guy $75,000 a year is what they're paying him. He befriends the Secret Service which is not uncommon. I did the same thing. He screws over the Secret Service, which is not uncommon. I did the same thing. Right. The problem with Albert was, is he, um, the agents, and they trusted me as well, some of the agents that were working with him let him have memos discussing some of the investigations that were going on, which was highly uncalled for. You're not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. He's an asset. He's an informant. They gave him memos discussing some of the breaches, like uh, TJ Maxx, Dave and & Buster's, and Heartland Payment Systems. Those three breaches that he had memos from from Secret Service, he was the guy that had done the breaches. So he's getting memos about the investigation and how it's going. Not only memos, but he's talking to some of these Secret Service agents about how that investigation's going. They're telling him... And they don't know he's the son of a bitch that's doing it. <laughs> yeah. So it takes them a while to figure this shit out. Okay. They finally figure it out. They arrest him in Miami. Now, while he's doing all this, this kid, and he's not charged. I mean, he had done the TJ Maxx br uh, hack, the breach. He doesn't get charged for that. They arrested him in New Jersey. They find out he's the TJ Maxx guy. They don't charge him. They let him go because he's such an asset to law enforcement. So he literally walks away from that. He then goes on to hit Dave & Buster's Heartland Payment Systems to the tune of 170 million credit cards. Good. The largest credit card thief in history. Then they find out about it. Then they backtrack and charge him for the TJ Maxx at that uh, point. Okay. All right? But uh, he ends up with two 20-year prison sentences is what he ends up with. He has a million dollars buried under a doghouse in his parents' yard in Miami. And he forfeits that as well. But yeah, he gets 220s is what he gets. He's due to be released, I think 2025, something like that is his actual release date. And he'll be, what, how old? Ah, uh, 40-some. 40-some. Yeah, he was in his 20s when he, uh, yeah. when he did, committed all the crime. And of course, the Secret Service at that point, I've heard some tells about it, as he was working with them, as they thought he was, as they thought he was reformed, they were actually taking this kid around to different conferences or different companies so he could talk to him. And they had this, they had a screen set up, and he would be behind the screen, you know, like this this anonymous figure. They had a screen set up with the backlight, so it should just cast his shadow, you know. <laughs> and he would talk to him about the different types of fraud. If you want to know the truth of the matter, Albert Gonzalez was never was never what I would consider that specter of a hacker. He wasn't. There were two other guys he worked with that were. What was good about Albert was that he was a good people person. He knew who to put in charge and who to talk to about things. He was never a hacker. He understood how, how fraud and crime worked. Hell, I understand that. I'm not a great hacker, but I'm a great fraudster. And that's the same thing that, that Albert was. He was great with people, same thing here, 
and he knew who to put in charge of things. So who, who he put in charge with was this guy named Jonathan James and another guy named Maxim or Maxime from Turkey. So Jonathan James was a, uh, was a minor underage when he started committing crime. The first cyber crimes that Jonathan James, and Jonathan James, if, if there's ever been that specter of a hacker, you know, that, that, that guy that everyone worries about breaking into your computer system, it's Jonathan James. Broke into DOD, broke into the Pentagon, broke into NASA as a minor, shut down the NASA computers for six weeks. That's this kid. And, of course, we never heard about that. Never hear about that. No. <laughs> but, yeah, NASA shut down their systems for six weeks because of the damage he, do, he did. After he gets out of that mess, he decides he wants to partner and start with credit card fraud, partners with Albert Gonzalez. Or I guess Albert took him under his wing because Albert knew who to talk to. So Albert takes him in, and that's where I think you have the problem or the breaches of Dave & Buster's and Heartland payment systems. Is right there. It's with Jonathan James. And of course, Jonathan James, Jonathan was scared that law enforcement was going to lay the blame of those breaches at his doorstep. Which prob and honestly, I can't say for sure that Jonathan was responsible for that. I think he was. Okay. And I, I first started when I started talking about Jonathan three years ago, I said, you know, he probably wasn't. Honestly, he probably was. He was really the only really skilled player in that group. So what does Jonathan do? He's indicted. He's arrested with Albert and Maxim and all these other guys. Jonathan's out on bond. He gets up one day, he walks in his dad's bedroom, gets out the 45, walks in the bathroom, writes himself a note, steps in the shower, and he blows his brains out. And that's what happens with Jonathan. Because he, what do you want to say? I mean, he, he couldn't handle it. He was scared he was going to get the blame. He was going to get the blame. But he decides to check out. The uh, The other guys, Maxim ends up with 30 years in prison. Jonathan, or not Jonathan, but Albert ends up with two 20-year prison sentences. And that's that's the thing, right, is that uh, no one, you know, I ended up with seven and a half. I got lucky. But no one who was ever involved in cybercrime ever, ever comes to a good end. It always goes south. Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H.com. Please tell your friends about us. Rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.